2: It's the media, stupid. Most people, especially young people, I would assume, think that we are in the middle of an epidemic of mass shootings. We're not not unless you count shootings you don't hear much about, the ones that happen every day in our cities, but the ones like we had in Odessa and El Paso and Dayton. There's a a perception out there that's been created that has been created by the media, by the way, the media's coverage. Uh, And when we come back after the break, you're going to hear from a criminal justice professor who has done a massive study on this subject. She's going to destroy some myths about just how much of a problem mass shootings actually are. And then, just to show you uh, that we cover anything and everything on this show, in our second half hour, we're going to hear from a guy who has a plan for a new football stadium in Oakland. That would be a new Pitt Stadium, so that Pitt could actually have some atmosphere at its football games. And by the way, the media, most of the local sports media, will shoot you down if you think that it's possible to put a stadium out there and get Pitt out of Heinz Field, but it's not impossible. And we'll talk to a guy who... We'll tell you how it can be done, where it can be built, and how to pay for it. That's all coming up, so stick around right here on the John Stagerwald Show, AM 1250, The Answer. A couple of weeks ago, we had Rocky Blyer here to talk about his work with Miracle League in Moon Township, fields for athletes with special needs. Jim Leland, the Pirates' former manager, is also involved in that project. Jim, thanks for being here. Great to be here, John. Great to talk to you. Tell me about the Miracle League of Moon Township. It's just a great thing for these kids, and it's a wonderful opportunity for people to participate. Some people are a little less fortunate than others, and I think it's just a great opportunity for people to volunteer and to help out and put a smile on somebody's face. I've seen the field that they put out in Upper St. Clair. It's amazing. Oh, it's unbelievable the way they construct these things. They have the ramps and everything for the kids. It takes a little stress off the parents. I think it's what Pittsburgh's all about. It's just a great thing. It'll serve Montour, West Allegheny, Moon, Sewickley, Weirton, Steubenville, Beaver, County and surrounding communities. So approximately 100 to 200 children will be eligible to participate and it'll also serve adults with special needs. So it's a great cause. And if you'd like to see how you can help, maybe donate some money, check it out at miraclesinmoon.org miraclesinmoon.org They blow into town with the wind, rain, and hail. And out-of-town storm chasers going door-to-door often posing as a local company offering a quick fix to desperate homeowners. If you've had damage to your roof, windows, siding, or gutters and downs spouts, you may be eligible to get them replaced or repaired free of charge. Just be careful who you call. Visit windowsrspittsburgh.com for a free inspection from one of their highly trained appraisers. With over 50 years in home remodeling, Windows R Us is the area's premier exterior replacement company for roofs, siding, gutters and downspouts, doors, and of course windows. If damage isn't your issue and you just want something new, you'll love their no-pressure approach, no hidden fees, and one of the fastest turnaround times in the industry. A company who will Will never skip town when it comes to honoring their warranty. Visit Windows R Pittsburgh.com. Mention Stag for an additional ten percent off. Windows R Us, proud sponsor of the jerk of the week, heard every Friday on the John Sigerwald show.
3: us pittsburgh.com It's time to stand with Israel. Consider the lifelong impact of joining the Answers Dennis Prager and Mike Gallagher on the Stand with Israel tour this December 2nd through 11th. More than a vacation, this journey will guide you through centuries of faith and culture as you visit iconic places right out of Scripture. Along the way, your hosts will broadcast on site while you watch and participate. Together with like minded travelers, you'll see over 40 iconic sites during the 10 day tour where you can pray at the Western Wall in Old City, Jerusalem. Float in the Dead Sea, and take a boat out onto the water of the Sea of Galilee. Have you ever wanted to walk inside the Garden Tomb? Register today for the Stand with Israel tour this December second through eleventh. Just go to our website for more details and registration information at theanswerpgh.com/israel. That's theanswerpgh.com/israel.
1: What is a warrior? At Portersville Christian School, a warrior is more than a team name. Here, at their fully accredited k 12th grade Christian school, just 15 minutes north of Cranberry, a warrior is taught to serve, to passionately model the love of Christ toward neighbor, community, and world. A warrior is challenged to learn as they develop a strong work ethic, achieve academic excellence, and cultivate a lifelong love of learning. And a warrior is trained to lead. Through Christian character and integrity, so they can impact the world for Christ by their example wherever God calls them. So, are you a warrior? Discover Portersville Christian School, a fully accredited K through twelfth grade Christian school just 15 minutes north of Cranberry, where warriors are made. At our PCS.org. That's o-u-r-p-c-s.org. The John Steigerwall Show, AM 1250, the answer.
2: every time you turn around, you see a Democrat who's running for president uh, say something stupid about gun control. It's all because they insist we have to do something to stop the mass shootings in America because it's an epidemic. Well, actually, it's not. And nobody knows that better than Jacqueline Schildkraut. She's an associate professor of criminal justice at the State University of New York in Oswego. She's done a major study on the issue, and she joins us now. Jacqueline, thanks for being here.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So, how much have you actually studied? Maybe this is a <laughs> kind of a loaded question, but how much have you actually studied the mass media's response to mass shootings and what it all means?
4: Um, you know, this is actually sort of where my career or my foray into the uh, you know the research on mass shootings began. Um, that was really where I started was trying to like understand how you know these events were being portrayed versus you know sort of the reality versus their you know the information we were being fed in the media um you know back around the time of virginia tech and it sort of carried me through to today
2: to what extent has the media's coverage given the average person the idea that we are in the middle of a you know a mass shooting epidemic right now
4: you know certainly the amount of coverage that any one of these events um, particularly highly lethal events receive you know certainly does make it appear as though it is an epidemic um you know, certainly the loss of one life to any act of gun violence, but certainly such a you know visceral and very public event is absolutely one too many. But if we think about it in the context of our crime picture nationally, these really are statistically rare events.
2: Um, and you also write that the disparity between uh, public perceptions about mass shootings and their reality of of occurrence have far-reaching impl- implications. What are some of those? implications i
4: mean absolutely i mean if we look even just at schools today you know there are parents who are sending you know spending hundreds of dollars for backpacks that are being promoted as bulletproof Mm -hmm. um you know in an attempt to keep them safe and the reality is that kids don't wear their backpacks all day long so you know there's a lot of commodification if you will of the fear that's being generated through the media coverage
2: Yeah, and I uh, I I just saw a tweet from um, what's her name? Uh, At Milano, uh, Alyssa Milano. She's um, she's a big, uh, a loud voice against guns and for gun control. And she had a long tweet that said, "We can't go to the grocery store. We can't go to school. We can't go to a movie. We can't go to church. America is afraid to go anywhere because of guns." Is that kind of what you're talking about?
4: You know, I mean, I think we have violence in this country regardless of whether or not, you know, specifically we to pinpoint guns, I and mean, certainly that's the position she's taken. Um, but, you know, I think the fact that these happen in, in conjunction with these, you know, sort of daily activities that we're all so used to, you know, getting up and going to work and going to school or going to a Walmart or a movie theater or a concert um, or a place of worship, you know, it certainly highlights that no particular community is immune to that Um I personally grew up in the Parkland community and went to college in Orlando, so I've had two communities that I've come from experience mass shooting. So, you know, certainly it does raise that awareness.
2: Yeah, I I, I compared it to uh, people who have a fear of flying. Um, when a plane crashes, it's a it's an extremely rare event. But if a if a jetliner goes down, especially if it goes down in the United States, it gets unbelievable coverage and it's it creates uh, a fear among people i mean there, there are people who are afraid to fly and your chances of, of dying in a plane crash are so small that it's just nobody should ever worry about it
4: absolutely but you know on the same token when planes crashed you know we saw the faa and other agencies sort of step in and address the problems to try and reduce that whereas with mass shootings you know we have this sort of cyclical discussion um, you know, there's these calls for, you know, thoughts and prayers and then calls for action. And a couple of days later, no one's really talking about it anymore. And then with each new event, it's sort of like, wait, how did this happen? Or not again. But the reality is, is that we don't have the same sort of proactivity in preventing the next one that we did with airplane crashes.
2: Yeah. And so, But also, uh, you know, when you're talking about the media, um, you know, anyone in the media who might be willing to tell, you know, does anybody in the media who might be willing to, to tell people to calm down and uh, when it comes to mass shootings and say that it's not an epidemic stand much of a chance without being accused of diminishing the most recent victims? I mean, it, it, the day after a shooting is not necessarily the time to say that, you know, this is a rare occurrence, is it?
4: No, I mean, absolutely not. And, I, and again, you know, that's why I said what I did in, in respect to leaving any rise to these events. It's absolutely horrific. Um, but you know, it's really hard to address a problem or to come up with solutions that stand a chance of working if we're not addressing, you know, these issues in their actual context. There's a very significant difference between, you know, the hysteria and fear mongering uh, you know, uh, context and then there's the reality of it. And if we're, doing in one and what are are doing in the reality then that makes it very difficult to actually respond accordingly
2: uh, in your report you say that uh, mass media in their reporting have overemphasized the shooters can you explain what that means and and how the how the the shooter should be emphasized or not emphasized
4: Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we see, particularly when the information becomes available, is that there is an overwhelming focus on the perpetrators of these events. And time and time again, what we know is that they are looking for fame. They're looking for infamy. They're looking for notoriety and for their names to be flashed across screens, for people to know who they are, to know their faces. And so, you know, a more responsible uh, form of reporting on mass shootings is to not completely black out using information like their name, or their image, but to limit that use instead of referring to the, them as the perpetrator, you know, promoting the victims rather than promoting the shooters. And, you know, that sort of has a twofold incentive, number one, or a twofold reward, in that, number one, we're removing the incentive for killers to stop doing these in an attempt to get infamy, but also, number two, is we're not rewarding them once they do it. And so that, you know, we do know that there is a contagion effect such that, you know, the more attention these receive, the more likely they are to produce copycat. and so it's really important that journalism is really focusing more on a sort of notoriety effort.
2: Uh, there's a there's a bill being proposed. It's already been proposed. Ted Cruz is behind it, and and I forget the other person. Um, it's not in front of me right now, but um, to um, ask them to have the media not give the the. Um, the, the the shooter's name or show his picture, ever uh, when it, when a shooting happens. I'm mean, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with the government telling the media what to do, but do you think the media has a have a moral obligation to to get together and and maybe um, forget about the competition for a minute and just agree to to do to to um, give less emphasis to the shooter, if not not give any at all.
4: Well, we're certainly seeing that movement. Um, you know, it's great to hear that our politicians are now jumping on board with this campaign, but it's actually been there um, since 2012. The No Notoriety Campaign actually was founded by Tom and Candice after their son Alex was murdered in the Aurora, Colorado theater movie, uh, movie theater shooting back in 2012. And so, you know, certainly there becomes an issue with the government trying to legislate that in terms of the First Amendment. But we are seeing movement among uh, agencies and individual reporters to not say the names of the shooters or to limit that use. Um, Anderson Cooper is one of the ones that stands out in my mind that doesn't do it a lot, you know, that doesn't do it at all. Um, He really focuses more on emphasizing the victim's nine news in denver so it's getting it's gaining the momentum it's just not where it needs
2: to be yet we're talking to uh, jacqueline schildkraut she's an associate professor of criminal justice uh and also a national expert on mass shooting um shootings um you, you also uh refer to something called the media constructed social problem of mass shootings what is that
4: it just goes back to the idea that we don't really talk about these events in respect to their actual context we don't talk about solutions that stand a chance to work it's very much sort of the sky is falling phenomenon you know again i really want to couch that these are horrific events that shouldn't be happening but we you know for the for the majority of people in this country they'll never experience a mass shooting directly and most likely won't know somebody um that has and so a lot of what we know comes from the media and so how they, these events are framed within that context really drives how people understand them.
2: And um, well, I think the thing that really uh, struck me in reading some of your stuff here is that it's something you, uh, when you talk about uh, primary claims makers, and what's a primary claims maker and what is a secondary claims maker?
4: So, you know, our primary claims makers are individuals who really drive the narrative. So, you know, we, we look at people... Um, like our politicians, you know, the people that say it is the guns, or it's not the guns, or it's video games, or it's mental illness. You know, who are basically telling us how, you know, what the problem is, what the causal factors is. They're really sort of, you know, creating the context, if you will. Secondary claims makers like the media are more of a conduit to push those messages out.
2: Yeah, and 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 but the the, the primary claims maker. Uh, that the the media will lean on a politician or someone in a position of authority to be the client, primary claims maker, and then the media becomes the secondary claims maker using the
4: correct. You, yeah. yeah, the media are more just like a, a vehicle, if you will, for how the primary claims makers are getting their messages out.
2: So, but but being the primary claims maker uh, puts the whatever the media outlet you're speaking about in a a particular instance uh pretty powerful in terms of what how it can drive the narrative isn't it because you make those choices as as a media outlet who you who you get on to interpret what just happened
4: oh absolutely um you know and in many respects you know even reporters in some cases can act like primary claim makers you know you can turn on um, you know, either Fox or CNN, and depending on who happens to be on at that time, the narrative is going to be very different. For instance, one thing that stands out to me is if you look at like CNN, for instance, um, if a shooting happens when Wolf Blitzer is on, he covers it very differently than Anderson Cooper covers it. So the messaging is different, even though they're on the same station. But also, who they bring in as guests, as you mentioned, or what politicians they choose to speak to, um, you know, certainly also shapes that narrative.
2: And, and the media, uh, there aren't that, when you get right down to it, if you're watching cable news, there aren't that many different outlets, are there? I mean, where you're going to get a variety of claims being made.
4: No, you usually will have it fall within the big two, maybe the big three, if you bring in MFWC. Uh,
2: and you also quote another researcher, and I thought this was good, um... He says the media, quote, may not be successful in telling people what to think, but they are stunningly successful in telling people what to think about. That's pretty that's pretty good.
4: Yeah, that's actually one of the quotes that always sort of resonates with me in terms of, you know, again, particularly in the context of mass shootings, the fact that, you know, most people really will never have this direct experience with it. And so as a result, the you know, what we choose to cover within the um, you know how the stories roll out is really what we're being told to think about you know certainly the, the narrative is pretty predictable we're going to talk about you know um certainly guns mental health and violent media one of the things that we don't really talk about as much let's say is the mental health needs of survivors and you know the resources that are needed by communities that are impacted by these tragedies? Um, you know, unfortunately, when something like what happened in Midland and Odessa happens, or you know, in any of these communities, the media and by extension the public are there for a very short amount of time, and everybody gets to move on with their lives. But these communities don't get to move on. This is now they've been changed forever.
2: Yeah, and um, so uh, bottom line, I mean. Uh, in your studies how much how much do you attribute the um the the media's blame uh how much how much blame do you give the media for um creating the following shooting the next shooting you know we've had one you know, now every every couple of weeks uh, how much of the media responsible for creating the next one
4: you know, I think one thing that we have to be mindful of in any conversation or any, you know, uh, finger pointing, if you will, about these events is at the end of the day, the person who is ultimately responsible for, it, responsible for it is the person who committed the, the crime. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, we certainly have made it um, in society that it is. I don't want to say it's in no way acceptable, but we've sort of resigned ourselves to the fact that these events are part of American culture. Um, I was talking actually with some of my students today. I'm actually teaching a class this semester on mass shootings, and we were talking about what happened over the weekend. And, you know, unfortunately we have this sort of mentality in this country that not one more has gone from not one more to add another one on the list. It's never a question of if it's going to happen, but when and where it's going to happen. And unless and until we change that mentality, you know, socially, we're not going ha- to stand a chance, and it doesn't matter what the media put on TV. Um, but, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, there is documented research that shows that there is a media effect in the way that these events are covered, and you don't need to look any further than the shooter in Parkland, who basically said on the video before- that he made before he went into the school that he wanted to be famous. And so, like I said earlier, when we put them on TV and we plaster their names and their faces everywhere, we're rewarding them for killing people.
2: And do do you get the feeling that the media feel any responsibility? Uh, and if they did, wouldn't they be doing more to not publicize the the shooter?
4: You know, I I definitely think that, um, like I said, there are strides being made. It's a grassroots movement, um, no notoriety, and I think you know, like any grassroots movement, it takes time for it to really touch on. Um, we certainly have seen a big push since the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand earlier this year where their prime minister came out and said, I will not speak his name. Um, you know, certainly I can only go by the reporters that I talk to. I know my local outlets here in Syracuse, New York are amazing. Like, they know I will not talk to them if they talk about the shooter in terms of their name and their picture. And, you know, we've had those conversations for years and, while they, you know, see the value in covering the story. They also understand they can cover the story without doing that.
2: Yeah, and, and, but it's a ratings thing, too. And, you know, you uh, immediately start seeing profiles of the shooter, What where which way he leans politically. Uh, you start talking to his friends, his family. What kind of guy is this? And it becomes a, a soap opera.
4: It does, but I think, you know, another thing to be unfortunately mindful of is that, you know, mass shootings are very episodic random crimes. Um, you know, they are planned events by the individuals who carry them out, but in terms of looking at their context, they are very random. And so really attempts to profile a mass shooter have been very futile. I mean, we see, we saw after Sandy Hook that, you know, the mental health community, um, and individuals who suffer from mental illness, um, or mental health issues were being criminalized potentially as the next mass shooter because the Sandy Hook shooter happened to have Asperger's which is a nonviolent mental illness um, and what we you know know about people who suffer from mental illness is they're actually more likely to be a crime victim than they are to be a crime perpetrator but again this is where that context comes into play that we see correlation versus causation and people assume hey, we have a profile, we can look out for the next mass shooter, we know what they look like, we know this, we know that. We don't know. And the sooner we realize that we don't know, the better off
2: we're going to be. Let me follow up on that. I just have a little less than a minute left. You say the sooner we forget about trying to predict or or categorize what type of person who might become a uh, a mass shooter, the better off we are?
4: Well, not necessarily the better off we are, but we're profiling people and we're over-predicting so that it looks like a lot more people are going to be mass shooters than really are. There are clear, distinct warning patterns and behaviors such as leakage where people are saying, I'm going to go out and commit a shooting, that people are tuning out when we know that they're legitimate precursors to this type of behavior. But to say that somebody happens to be a 20-something or 30-something white male does not mean that they're going to be the next mass shooter.
2: Uh, okay, I, uh, I'm I'm out of time, Jacqueline, but I really appreciate you being here, and um, you're doing great work there. I just wish more people were seeing it. I wish the media were paying more attention to it. Do you?
4: Uh, absolutely, but, you know, like I said, when it becomes your own community, it becomes personal as, as well as professional, and so, you know, I will go every single day until we have communities not having to suffer this anymore.
2: Well, thanks for being here. I appreciate you taking the time.
4: Thank you so much for having
2: me. Okay, and that's Jacqueline Schildkraut. She's an associate professor of criminal justice at State University of New York at Oswego, and we'll be right back.
3: With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington, practically parking over the Bahamas for a day and a half. Hurricane Dorian pounded away at the islands Tuesday. In a watery onslaught that devastated thousands of homes, trapped people in attics and crippled hospitals. At least five deaths are reported with the full extent of damage far from clear. International Red Cross spokesman Michael Cochrane says there's widespread storm damage reported from Abaco and Grand Bahama Islands. We
5: believe that more than 13,000
0: houses have been severely damaged or destroyed. That's about 45% of all homes
3: on the two islands. And he says there needs to be an immediate response for victims of Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas. About 62,000 people across the two islands um, will need access to clean
6: drinking water.
3: Meanwhile, the outer banks of the hurricane are battering the central Florida coast as the hurricane chugs slowly northward. On Wall Street, a down day as the Dow dropped
6: 285 points. This is SRN News. Summer is here, and so are the bugs and other pests. Don't let your home or business be overrun this season with unwanted intruders. Forget about throwing your money away on those harmful toxic chemicals. This season, plug-in pest-free. G'day, I'm Scott from Plug-in Pest-Free. This summer, turn your house wiring into a hostile environment for rodents and other unwanted pests, effectively driving them out the safe, humane way without the use of toxic chemicals. Designed to last for years, it will save you a ton of money. Our bestseller, the Plug-In Pest Free Pro, covers up to 4,000 square feet. Now that's fair income. The Pro comes with a 20% discount when you use promo code SAVE20. That's promo code SAVE20 for 20% off. Order yours online today at gopestfree.com. That's gopestfree.com, promo code SAVE20. Don't sprain regret, plug in and forget. Dennis Prager
0: is on a mission. Liberals tell the truth, liberals lie. Conservatives tell the truth, conservatives lie. But the left always lies. Because truth is not a left-wing value. So it doesn't bother their conscience. This, I'll call it a crusade, this crusade... To expose the left's lie about Charlottesville is deep in my conscience. The Dennis Prager Show. Weekdays at noon. Right before Sebastian Gorka at 3 on AM 1250. The answer
1: Community Bank. City Mission. Number One Cochrane. Highmark Stadium. Peters Township Community Center.
3: Angelo's Restaurant.
1: What do all these businesses have in common? Nello Construction. Design and build with one company. Nello Construction, full-service construction from the ground up. Renovation, expansion. Nello Construction, the choice for business. See the projects, begin the journey at Nelloconstruction.com. If you're worried about market volatility or the possibility of losing money in the next market crash, the time to act is now. Effective financial management involves identifying opportunities. And with a 10-year bull market run, markets around all-time highs and a highly contested election cycle right around the corner, we have an opportunity now to protect what's important. Don't risk losing a significant portion of your life savings in the next market downturn. Call Hunt & Associates today, 844-366-HUNT. That's 844 366 For legal help that lasts a lifetime, visit a-h.law. Homeowners love their Pella windows and doors, and we love
4: how happy we made Susan from Sewickley. I just have to tell you, this bay window is absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's fantastic. (laughs) It really is. Beautiful. I mean, beautiful. Can we install some happiness for you? Right now, get 50% off installation or 18 months, no payments, no interest. Call for your free consultation. We'll come to you. 888 78 Pella, PellaPittsburgh.com.
0: Stuck in traffic? We've got the answer.
4: Hi, I'm Ann Evans. Here's a look at your traffic. An accident cleared on the Parkway West on 376 inbound, approaching Route 19, and it's backed up from 79. On 376 outbound, bumper-to-bumper, bumper, the Parkway Center drive to Carnegie. On the Parkway East, 376 outbound, barely moving. The Boulevard of the Allies to Edgewood-Swissvale. Inbound between Edgewood-Swissvale and the Squirrel Hill Tunnel. And inbound again, more delays on the Parkway East between 2nd Avenue and the Fort Pitt Bridge. I'm Ann Evans, and that's a look at your traffic.
7: AM 1250, the answer, weather. Partly cloudy tonight, it'll be warm and humid with a low of 65. Some areas will see a shower toward daybreak or early tomorrow. Otherwise, tomorrow clouds will give way to sunshine, and it'll turn less humid. Nice in the afternoon with a high near 80. Partly cloudy and cooler tomorrow night with a low of 52, and then Thursdays looking nice we will have sunshine and high of 74. With your AccuWeather forecast, I'm meteorologist Frank Strait.
0: This is the John Steigerwald Show on AM 1250. The answer.
2: So, how about some sports? Uh, Pitt opened a season with a loss to Virginia on Saturday, and the game was played in front of an announced uh, crowd of about 47,000. And if you buy that number, it means that there were 20,000 empty seats somewhere around there. Not good for a home opener against a conference opponent, but actually a pretty good number for Pitt. 20,000 empty seats doesn't do a lot for atmosphere, though. Now, imagine if the game had been played in a 45,000-seat stadium. That's a packed house, and it changes everything. Well, Pitt should be playing home games on campus in a stadium that size. And Tony DiFiore, who has a master's degree in city planning and has worked on stadiums in Philadelphia for the Eagles, Phillies, and Temple University, has a plan, and he joins us now. Tony, thanks for being here, man.
5: John,
2: thanks a lot for having me. So, uh, this stadium would go in Oakland. Where are you going to put it? John, the
5: only place to put this is at the top of the hill right at the OC lot, build over the Cost Center, extend to the Peterson Center, and make the crowning achievement for Pitt Athletics, the stadium.
2: Okay, so where, how does it fit in there, though? I mean, anytime I mention this to somebody, they come back with, there's no room in Oakland. Have you ever, have you been to Oakland lately? There's no place to put it.
5: <laughs> First of all, I went out there with one of those uh, real measures. The stadium absolutely fits. Also, the parking is always an issue. There is 5,000 parking spots right next to the stadium. There's 15,000 parking spots within two blocks of the stadium. And I think that's plenty for 40,000 people. And, of course, there'll be about eight to 10,000 students that'll be there. So that cuts the number down even more.
2: Now, does Pitt own the land out there where uh, you uh, foresee this thing being built?
5: Pitt has everything owned on the top of the hill, except for the VA hospital, and they also have rights to some of the properties on the other side of Center Avenue, which could very easily be turned into a parking lot for game days.
2: And people, where can people go to see uh, more of this? Um, is a website? Yes,
5: I have a website: www.newpittstadium.com. Okay, and you... It deals with all the development ideas. And, of course, there are, there are some far-fetched ones there, but also, there's a lot of nuts and bolts in that 38 pages. It's the kind of plan that is basic, down-to-the-earth down to mentality that Pittsburgh loves, and it can be built for under $200 million.
2: And, uh, and I, I did mention uh, in the intro here that you have a master's degree in city planning, and you've worked on stadiums in Philadelphia. You're, you're in Philly, right now?
5: I'm outside of Philadelphia.
2: Yeah, and, and, but you, you were involved in the stadiums there, so this is you're not oh, just absolutely. some wild wild pit fan who throwing <laughs> this stuff out there.
5: Well, I am a wild pit fan, yeah. but the thing is, I do have a professional background. Uh, I worked with three-city councilmen in Philadelphia, and during that time, the Apollo Arena was built at Temple, and the Wells Fargo Center was built, the Lincoln and Financial Field was built, and also the Philly Stadium was built and they were all put in an area where it was wide-open area down by the waterfronts in Philadelphia. Now, the best places for that development would have been on the waterfront right in Penn's Landing. But you have to put a stadium where the people want to go. People want to go to Penn's Landing. People want to go to Pitt. They want to go to Oakland. And that could be – I can't even imagine what a wonderful day it would have been to have that Pitt-Virginia game on campus in Oakland.
2: Should have been played at one o'clock in Oakland perfect could have made a whole
5: festival of it the whole the whole Oakland would have been just ramped up for a great time great alumni presence everything
2: so how many how many people would this uh, this uh, stadium that you envision hold
5: I would think between forty and forty five thousand mm-hmm. would be a perfect number you know anything more can always be retrofitted
2: mm-hmm. now a Even long a long time ago maybe 25 years ago, uh, maybe a little less than that, I can remember I, uh, having a discussion with a um, a member of the Pittsburgh media, someone every, most people would recognize, and I said at the time that Three Rivers Stadium was too big for the Pirates, and they needed to build a smaller ballpark to make tickets tougher to get and cause people to buy advanced tickets because... You know they had fifty thousand seats there at, at uh, Three Rivers, fifty-five, I think it was, and nobody ever. They never had fifty-five thousand people for a game. Maybe in the playoffs they did, and so people could look out the window and see what the weather is before they decided to go to a, a pirate game. And you can't. And
5: great, Buck Nights
2: too. Yeah, you can't have that with football. So this guy laughed at me and said, "You know what are you talking about? A smaller state and they need to draw more people." They, it, and and it worked out okay at, at PNC Park when they actually had a team worth going to see there for a while and 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 when the park was first opened up there was proof that the small the small park makes everything more appealing and that was you would get the same effect with a smaller football stadium like you get at Boston College for example
5: exactly bc i mean you see wide spots of uh, empty seats at the University of Miami you, yep. can, you can see them everywhere even the Steelers are having trouble selling out
2: yeah, and I, I uh, have I, just recently. The University of Houston is a good example. Uh, it, it's a it's a city school, just like Pitt, uh, in the middle of a bunch of schools that have either either that are either state schools or have a statewide following, and uh, which is just like Pitt, and they built a forty two thousand seat stadium on campus, and it, it kind of turned the program around
5: perfect. Cincinnati's the same way. Cincinnati has their stadium, Nippet Stadium, built right in the center of campus, and the entire athletic programs, all the programs function right around it. Mm-hmm. It's just an absolutely perfect idea, and I think we should do the same thing at Victory Heights. This new master plan that Pitt came up with is a hodgepodge of ideas with no fluent understanding of what development should be at a university.
2: Now what is this, And sometimes... What is this plan yeah, that they've come up with?
5: Well, it seems as if they want to put a fitness center on the OC lot, which is exactly where this new stadium should be built. Mm -hmm. And to be quite honest with you, I think we have enough fitness centers that the students can definitely get enough uh, workouts if they need it. But we don't have a stadium. And now this stadium isn't going to be used for six nights or six afternoons a year. This stadium is going to be multi-purpose. This stadium could actually be, and I, I would love to see this happen, become the home for Special Olympics and hold all the Special Olympic events at Pittsburgh for the entire world, for the entire country, and definitely the world.
2: And um, what's holding it up? I mean, why why are there so many naysayers and why does it seem to be dismissed by everybody? Not just everybody, like fans and media, but people at Pitt.
5: The people at Pitt don't want to build it because I truly believe that they're not in charge of what gets built at Pitt in terms of stadiums. The whole ball of wax resides with the Rooneys. And the Rooneys have done a wonderful job accommodating Pitt at the stadium at Heinz Field. Mm-hmm. But I also think that we need to build a stadium for Pitt. And I think the Chancellor will see that and he will definitely come around to the idea.
2: So so the Rooney the the the, the association with the Steelers is holding it up?
5: Not not necessarily the Steelers we have a thirty year lease with the Steelers, which I think has remained ten years on it. And there's no way we want to break that that lease with the Steelers because I don't think we can. And to be quite honest with you, the Steelers have been just too next nice to the University of Pittsburgh mm-hmm. with Heinz Field.
2: So but so when would be the earliest that if, if you got if you convince people to build a, a stadium out there, when's the earliest that Pitt could move into it?
5: Pitt would have to move into it probably in the next five to seven years. It has to be built in the next five or seven years because costs are going to skyrocket. And even Pitt with $3.9 billion in endowment couldn't run enough municipal bonds to help pay for this. Right now, everything is in a perfect position to be built. You could call this the UPMC Pitt Stadium. They could sign a contract for $100 million over 20 years for naming rights, it could float a bond for the rest. And Pitt has 4A Moody Services ranking on their uh, municipal bonds. Those bonds would be... If you wanted to have a $200 million million bond by the University of Pittsburgh, it would sell in a half hour. I guarantee that. Because it's that strong university, as far as investment goes. Investment grade.
2: And... Um, there are former Pitt players who have some money and some clout who would get behind this?
5: Oh, we have great commitment from the, year, from the players, former players. There's no doubt. And some of them have been successful, Successful, and they would definitely help out, along with a lot of other alumni, like David Tepper. David Tepper helps to pay for the Pitt basketball scholarships every year. And the man is only worth two hundred. dollars He's the $2, new $2, $2, $2, owner $2, of the Carolina
2: Panthers, yeah.
5: Right. And he Zone, the minority owner, is there for a while. And he's going to be a great owner. And he he went to Pitt and he led. called it Tepper Stadium for all I care. As long <laughs> as that money would have come in.
2: Now, here's the thing, though. I mean, everything you say seems to make all kinds of sense. The, do the people at Pitt dismiss it because they don't believe that it could be done or they just don't? want to get involved in it Uh, and and do the the people that that say i
5: think they're out of their league john i really don't think they know enough about development and that was proven to me by reading that master plan that really didn't make any sense on development you cannot make a thoroughfare through pit onto soda street extending all the way down to uh south oakland i don't understand what they want to do and it has to have some type of continuity and if you want to build an athletic facility, you have to put a, a, a footprint somewhere, and the footprint is on top of the hill.
2: But do, do you? Are there people at Pitt who matter and who could make this happen, who actually agree with the concept of having a campus, uh, having a stadium on campus that seats forty-two to forty-five thousand, being much better than what they have now, but they just feel like they're trapped where they are.
5: Exactly. You named it. You said it, it. That's exactly what it is. But at the time, the thirty-year, basically, we should have never left Pitt Stadium. When I went to Georgia Tech to see us play, that stadium was built at exactly the same time as Pitt Stadium and was retrofitted to a beautiful stadium. Notre Dame was built at the same time. Mm-hmm. You don't see them knocking that place down. That would have been the move to make at the time. But moving our home field was a great move because it, it helped the program. Walt Harris was a coach, and it did wonders. But now we see that the dollars are, are there to build on campus, and it would be a great urban development. And what the a, monies would flow in.
2: What about the students? Do you think that the students? <laughs> the student I, I didn't be, like
5: walking up that hill, to be quite honest with you. And Judge was never around with the bus in time. So uh, to be quite honest with you, we have nine bus routes that run through oakland right now if you get the students up there in a heartbeat and that's a lot different than going down to heinz field
2: yeah um and um is 65, 000 for a city school even a realistic number to expect uh pit to reach as far as attendance i mean no matter how good they get if, if it's not penn state or west virginia or notre dame they're just not going to get sixty-five thousand in there
5: we will. Get, I tell you what. We will get those kind of crowds if, perhaps, one game a year, we take it down there to play Penn State at Heinz Field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. When you really know you're going to sell out the stadiums, which we do for big
2: games like that.
5: And they Our did. It a- used to be filled up when Walt Harris was coaching. That stadium was pretty well filled except for the corners.
2: Yeah, and and um, I, 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 there there were times when in the seventies when uh, Pitt played Penn State at Three Rivers Stadium. And they were yeah. still. The, Pitt Stadium was still their home field. Uh, they 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 would move big games to Pitts to, to Three Rivers. Uh, I'm thinking of back on it now, I don't know why, because the, the 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 number of seats was about the same. But just I guess it was a. I oh, was played at night. Okay. They played at night. That's what it was. Yeah, they had constantly kind of accommodated television.
0: Yeah,
5: but even when they watched, that was the coach. You could see the stadium was filling up because they thought we could win. Pittsburgh fans will follow them they of losers too, but they will
2: definitely come out winners. We're talking uh, to Tony DiFiore. He's a guy who has a plan to put a stadium uh, for Pitt, a new football stadium in Oakland. That he needs to, uh, and his plan needs to be uh, just taken seriously. At least uh, it would help if the media would get behind it a little bit. But for some reason, the media dismisses it too. At least that seems that's my impression, anyway.
5: I think you're right, and I think that's because it's five and six and six and five and
2: seven yeah. And five. You're yeah, yeah. And
5: yeah. I think that would change.
2: with wins. Um So, what are the chances of this happening realistically? I know uh, you you aren't going to give up on it, but uh, no. are are people that that have been involved with this idea and who are, who believe it can work are they dropping off? Or are they still intent on doing it?
5: That I don't know. There's some very We have very well endowed individuals all throughout the history of Pitt's football program as well as the university. People could come up with this money that would help to build this stadium. But honestly, John, the money is there already just with landing rights and municipal bonds. You could raise at least $250 million that way.
2: Are there more people who are in favor of this but who are not willing to speak out about it because they don't want to uh, upset the, the athletic director and the chancellor and just don't want to be a pain No,
5: because I really believe that they all are very friendly with each other. I'm not, not sure exactly who those people are, but I, I can't imagine people not wanting to sit down and talk about things. I, I don't understand it. But it seems as if, The whole, the general idea was no, we're not going to build a stadium right now. But right now is uh, the time to do it. Because honestly, in the next five to seven years, the costs are going to be prohibitive.
2: Well, Tony. uh, Put a fitness center on
5: top of the hill is just ridiculous.
2: Yeah. Well, I I think they're crazy not to to at least uh, get together with somebody and make a serious effort and, you know, at least. Put forth some kind of an effort to do it and see if, if you you know if somebody can shoot it down and uh, logically and and it's, exactly. uh, it it can't be done don't do it but to just dismiss the idea I think is dumb I hope uh, they start listening to you
5: I do too my friend and I'll tell you what I spoke with Armand years Armand Delavoye years ago about this and he said try a plan see what happens and he certainly knew how to build stadiums yeah and it's just a matter God rest his soul he's a great it great pit alum.
2: Well, uh, keep me posted, Tony. My pleasure. Anytime you need some publicity on let me know, because I think it's something that needs to be done. I appreciate it. John, thanks for having me. Okay, we'll be right back. Take care. If you're an employer, a business owner, if you have 5 to 100 employees, listen up. The cost of doing business continues to skyrocket, strangling your HR department with more regulations, administrative duties, and liability than ever. I'm John Steigerwald. Your health plan's a big part of that cost. Another year, another 10% rate hike, another $1,000 increase on your deductible, another hospital or doctor you can't go to because they're not in the network. Isn't it time for a change? Well, stop the insanity and call Marley Financial, the most innovative agency in the industry. Put an end to the annual increase. Give your employees a national network that all hospitals accept and reduce your monthly premiums by 20 to 30 percent. It doesn't matter when your renewal is. Marley can help today. Call 724-884-1496. Marley Financial, 724 884
3: 724-884-1496. You started your business with nothing but a great big idea. They told you it couldn't be done, but that just made you work harder to prove them wrong. Now look at you, ready to take on the world. Speed Pro Pittsburgh South gets where you're coming from. When they said they wanted to create great big graphics for great big ideas like yours in less time than anyone else, they were told it couldn't be done. Speed Pro Pittsburgh South just smiled and said, oh, yeah, watch us. When you need a large format printing partner who can provide high quality visual graphics in stunning detail from trade show displays to outdoor signs, 3M brand vehicle wrap for your fleet to window graphics, banners and decals. Speed Pro Pittsburgh South can handle most jobs in two days or less and can roll with last minute change ups without breaking a sweat says it can't be done. For a free quote, visit SpeedProPGHSouth.com. Hi, my name is
0: Ryan Bourne.
4: And I'm Danica Bourne.
0: And And we're we're the owners of South Coast Tax.
4: We started our company 10 years ago in an effort to help our fellow Christians experiencing tax issues resolve their matters by taking a simple three-step approach.
1: South Coast Tax are Christian-based tax accountants
0: and attorneys that specialize in releasing bank levies, wage garnishments, and filing complex tax returns. We are the leaders in acceptance of offers and compromise with awesome results. We're also a small firm who will treat you like family, not just a number.
7: 1176. Morning Bullets is asking for the public to respond to a nationwide poll that could help shape political policy in 2020. This is your chance to be heard by the decision makers all the way up the chain. Their question. Should the federal government provide free health care to illegal immigrants? Yes or no? Visit Trump's Pulse to let your voice be heard before the decisions are made for you. Medical services are guaranteed by the Emergency Treatment and Active Labor Act and require hospitals to provide care regardless of citizenship, legal status, or ability to pay. The Federation for American Immigration Reform reported that medical expenditures for illegal immigrants was over $17 billion in 2017 alone. The decision is up for debate, and the policymakers want to hear what the public thinks. Should the federal government provide free health care to illegal immigrants? Yes or no? Go to Trump's Trumpspulseonamerica.com now to vote. That's Trump's Trumpspulseonamerica.com. Trumpspulseonamerica.com. Be heard. You're listening to The John Steigerwald Show on AM 1250.
0: The answer.
2: Well, just finishing up here... Um And I like the show we did today because we had two very different subjects, uh, mass shootings and the media and how they are responsible for, not responsible, but uh, maybe contributing to the uh, problem. And also a stadium for Pitt in Oakland, which I think is something that should be done. I only have a few seconds left, but I wanted to make sure I mentioned that Elizabeth Warren, who's out there saying that you should be forced to pay for everybody else's college education, even if you've already paid for yours, your kids and your grandkids, uh, her, her husband teaches at, uh, law, at the Harvard Law School. He makes $400,000 a year. That's uh, $1,600 a week. Uh, no, no, it's, it's, it's uh, $8,000 a week. $1,600 a day he makes to teach at Harvard. I don't know. Maybe they ought to think, think about looking at the costs for kids to go to college. Maybe somebody will ask Liz about that. I doubt it. Talk to you tomorrow.
0: The John Wall Show is a production of AM-1250, The Answer, and Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military.
1: Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive
0: new documentary, Flynn